Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwell-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we are getting to the root of many important topics from food to agriculture to climate to rural economics. And today we have an amazing guest. I'm so pleased to be here actually in person at the California Wheat Commission with Claudia Carter. So Claudia, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm really meet you in person too. Yeah, it's actually, um, I think after after COVID in the last couple of years to actually be face-to-face across the table with somebody instead of in a Zoom box feels really, really refreshing. Yeah. So absolutely. I'm really glad that I could, you know, not only take some time out of your day to do this, but also to get to tour the lab and meet your team and learn more about what you're doing here. And I was wondering if just to kick off our discussion today, if you could tell our listeners about you, because you have a really fascinating background. I would love for you to tell a little bit about your personal story and then how you came to work here at the California um, Wheat Commission and what work you're doing here. So I think that we could fill the podcast up with just that, but go ahead and take it away and and let us know about your journey. Yeah, so I'm uh, originally from Ecuador um, and then I'm from a coastal city called Manta. Um, I was actually interested in food my, you know, my whole life. I've been cooking on a little stool, standing up uh, since I'm little. And my mom, my grandma would come and say to my mom, hey, you know, are you worried that you, she would burn or she would like hurt herself? And my mom was like, no, she got it. She's fine. So she, they always allow me to do experiments in the kitchen. Um, I also you know, became interested in food science uh, in high school when I was interested actually in, in engineering courses. And I thought, well, but I don't want to be a, my dad wanted me to be a, chem- a chemical engineer. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. However, I found out that you can mix food and engineering. And there was this career that was just emerging out there, food engineering. So that's, that's how I started. I went to Argentina where I started studying food engineering. And then a couple of years later, I decided to move to the U.S. Um, because I wanted to learn English at the same time when mm-hmm. I was doing my career um, learning. So I went to North Dakota State University, I studied food science, and then I did my master's in cereal science there. Um, and then after that, I graduated in 2014. I was given the opportunity to come to the California Wheat Commission, which is the only uh, state wheat commission in the U.S. that have a quality lab on site. Most of the wheat commissions have quality labs at the university. And I became the lab director back then, um, and then the executive director in 2016. Um, my passion for for weed, for food, definitely started at North Dakota State University with the, the weed love, where I started to understand that weed was just not an all-purpose flower, but there was a lot more to weed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coming to California and learning a lot more about um, the 
variables that come into like the environment and the variables that bring that to to the wheat table it's amazing because we can grow pretty much all the type of classes of wheat that are grown in the u.s here um so yeah that's how i ended up here um and has led me to meet amazing farmers um people in the industry in the milling and baking industry mm-hmm. uh people who you know, also are interested in nutrition, of course, that too. So I've been meeting people from really all over the world thanks to this job. So I really yeah. love it. Yeah, it <clears throat> really puts you in a unique position to have a rub with people across sectors and in many different industries from diet, nutrition to milling, like you said, manufacturing, but also out in the field working with agronomists, farmers, soil scientists and beyond. So I, I must say that that's probably one of the highlights of, of your work is yes. just all the diversity of people. Um, a couple of things I'd like you just to talk about is the fact that you're working on your PhD right now mm-hmm. and you do have a focus on nutrition. And I think for many people who are on the, you know, really, there's a strange phenomenon in the United States where we have nutrition, we have farming, and we have healthcare. Seldom are all these people at the same table talking about the same thing. So I find it really fascinating that you're in the cereal sciences and in the, you know, really more of the agricultural side, but with a very focused study and practice in nutrition. And I'm a nurse, so obviously I'm always interested in how nutrition affects health. Um, Tell us a little bit about that part of your journey and where you're at in your schooling. Yeah, so um, my journey to, I actually was never interested in studying nutrition. In fact, when I was coming to the U.S. They gave me, um, I went through through a process where they say, give us three different um, majors that you would like to study. Of course, food science, and then it was microbiology and then nutrition at the, at the, at the bottom. Um, because I wasn't really interested in that aspect. I was just more interested in making food that was good for people, just as good as texture-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, how I came to uh, appreciate the nutrition aspect is when I realized after understanding, I think you do have to dig really deep into a food system before you understand it so well that you're like, you see what's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. So once I understood about the mill industry, the wheat market, how, you know, the farmers work, how the breeders work, but then how the milling and the baking industry work and as, as, a, as a commodity market. And then, and mm-hmm. then you see what actually is wrong in our, you know, our health and our nutrition as you know western diets happen then you understand what happened and what what is going wrong so right. so my my moment of like this is what i want to do was actually and where i realized there's something wrong here is when i was working with actually kids so we have a connection here with a school that they were growing greens and and they came knocking on the door and say hey we're growing, growing wheat but we don't know what to do with it afterwards and we want to teach kids about you know, the process of harvesting greens and then milling them, but we don't have those tools. So that I said, we have all those tools. So we partner and then we did this amazing process where we brought the kids in here and then we allow them to bring the wheat they harvested, they mill it here, and then we make products with it. So we made 100% whole grain, whole grain pasta, tortillas and bread. And then of course a snack for them to go home, which is a, a chocolate chip cookie. Um, most of the people that lives in Woodland are, or at least the the, the kids that go to the school, 85% to 90% are Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. So their diet is mostly probably based on tortillas. That's what they eat. So these children that were here, and then as we were getting these 100% whole wheat tortillas and they were trying it, there was a 
pairs of kids like saying, I love this. This is the best tortilla I have ever had. So then I started thinking, well, oftentimes you hear that the kids don't like whole grain things and that they reject them. Here I have all these 25 kids saying that they love this tortilla. Mm-hmm. Then what are we doing wrong? What's, what's going on that they are liking it? Mm-hmm. So that's when it got me actually starting to think about the nutrition aspect that they tell you that you need to eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Sometimes they say that and emphasize it. But what, you know, what we have available is not specifically all the 100% whole grain products that we would like right. to have. And yeah, sometimes those products are not necessarily the best quality. So then there's something there, the misconnection, the disconnection between a consumer and the farmer and the nutrition and yes, the health system that you're describing. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it all should come together and be seated on the one table. Let's try to fix it. But that doesn't happen or rarely happens. But I also realized to make a system change where you're actually leading a food system to be healthy mm-hmm. from the soil up, you have to have all these people on the table. You have to have right. you right. know the policymakers, you have to have the people making the food and the farmers. That we're all talking about how can I how can I make something as a raw material? How can we process it and how can we make the best product out of it mm-hmm. that we're actually aiming for the same goal? Right. Yeah. When we really put the end goal at the center of the table mm-hmm. and then have everybody around the table discussing their challenges, exactly. um, depending on what they're up against, <clears throat> you know, because it's different for for each of the segments. But then you're unified around one central goal. Suddenly getting through all the hurdles to solve the problem seems much easier because it's like this collaborative approach. And, you know, we're up against, you know, current American culture, which is decided to just shun pretty much the entire green category kind of in the pop culture diet trend world. And, um, you know, I've often thought that was really sad, but it, it is really grown out of the fact that so much of what our CPG consumer packaged good grocery store brands deliver is really highly processed, poor quality wheat-based products. And I think that that's, you know, really been done a disservice to the role of whole grains in the diet. So I, I love that you guys are working on bringing back a lot of biodiversity, not only with, you know, working with the processing, which is really, really important, but starting at the farmer level with the breeders, the farmers, um, looking at the impact from the soil up. Um, you have done a ton of work with biodiversity in weeds and small cereals as well. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that journey and what who you've been working with and what you've been doing? Yeah, so, well, in the past, we used to test mainly the varieties and the wheat types that were going to, you know, the large scale, you know, production. But then a couple of years ago, we started working with small grain farmers, uh, organic, also some that practice regenerative. One of them is actually here in the Sacramento Valley called Fritz Durst. Fritz uses, um, you know, rotational crops, uh, minimum, uh, minimum tillage. Mm-hmm. So he could actually use that nitrogen from, let's say, legumes so he can plant wheat afterwards, for example, so he can use that out. Right. Um, and I do have another farmer at sales who actually grows also wheat in that scenario organically. Mm-hmm. And I would say also regenerative. Sometimes you definitely you can have both. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then what we have seen and how we look at the diversity is not only on the aspects of quality, where we are testing. And we decided to test here. Usually you test white flour for quality. 
But we decided to move away with that because it's actually easier and simplified if you take the, the grain and grind it as a whole grain. And then we actually have worked on, on, we're still working on developing an easier path to test quality that is going to be just two or three tests rather than usually in the wheat quality world, we test five to 10 different quality aspects of it. Mm -hmm. So those two or three aspects of the wheat uh, quality, which are mixograph and sedimentation can tell us a lot about the, the, the bakeability, like how is it going to bake? But yeah. we are not, so how in the commodity world, um, marketing wheat works is that you put wheat in boxes and those are based a lot of times on just protein content mm -hmm. um, and then maybe test weight, thousand kernel weight and something else. Is it clean? Is it dirty? Um, and then with that, they give it and say, okay, high protein, good for bread. However, how we're approaching here, because there's so much variability in what they're growing, the organic and regenerative farmers, is rather than saying it has, it's, all, it's, it's often going to come in a lower protein. So people have to take, if you're working with farmers that are in that world, you have to take that mindset of working with grading wheat as a commodity world. You have to take that mindset off, yeah. like shut it off. Yep. And that was really the hardest thing to do. Mm -hmm. Now, you can work with regenerative farming organic, and how you can help them is actually what we do is select varieties that work for them. Mm -hmm. And they're varieties that work for those system systems. Sure. And how they work is because genetically speaking, they actually have higher quality genes. So I give you an example with a variety called West Red 9229. That variety has been grown under conventional systems with the maximum nitrogen, fertilizer, and water management. And that same variety has been worked on organic systems with very low to minimal input and mm -hmm. has given low protein. So we have a 14% protein and a nine, eight, 9% protein that we wow. have seen the same variety. Huh. That variability in a normal system, they would have actually rejected that bread wheat on the 9% and say, this is not suitable just on the protein and the 14%, okay, this is good. Not only that, the farmer gets discounted. That means that they get, um, mm -hmm. you know, they actually get taken away some money and the 14%, 15% gets a premium for that. Right. However, when we bake those, the bread out of those two, the bread was actually equal in quality. And we have actually baked 9% protein wheat that is actually better than a 15, 14% protein wheat that is not suitable for bread. Wow. So that's a, that's a <clears throat> paradigm changer when, it, when you look at the shaping of market demand mm -hmm. and incentivization at a farming level, mm -hmm. because so much of what farmers are doing is to deliver to the expectations of the commodity market so that they're making the profits they need to stay in business. But what you're saying right now really changes the whole value system intrinsic in <clears throat> rating bread that if we take a little deeper dive and look at a little more than just the protein level, and we start looking at quality and then, you know, all the other nutrients that are present, um, it, it really kind of changes the value um, spectrum in wheat as a market. That's a that's a game changing concept when you think about it. Yeah. From a big, big systems level. And you are actually helping the farmer in a way that nobody else is helping them, because when when companies want to work with regenerative farmers, organic farmers, um, they're expecting to receive the same same quality as conventional. Right. Well, then why are you in this area? Like, yeah. no. And when <clears> you <throat> also talk about consistency, you expect, actually, you should be expecting less consistency, which is totally normal because mm -hmm. what is consistent in a soil system? You know, 
what is yeah. consistent in an environment that changes not only even within within its own region you have microclimates right mm-hmm. so what you have to be really good at is actually making sure you understand the raw material the genetic part is going to be the most important aspect of that sure. because 30% in wheat at least 30% the variability comes from the genetics mm-hmm. so if you have a good variety selection partnership with a university yeah. or with some entity then you can select those varieties. You can do test trials, and that's mm-hmm. a partnership with the farmer. See mm-hmm. which varieties work better for their systems. At the end, the farmer that is in, in, farm, in farm A, mm-hmm. but then the farmer that's farm B next to it, and might be slightly more rain just a couple miles away. I don't sure. know, different areas could be that. The varieties that work for, for farmer A and B are going to be different. Right, and the terroir and, and the exactly. flavor. And you know, we've often compared this whole grain essence <laughs> to really what happened to wines mm-hmm. um you know you look at early at, in the california wine industry um globally california wines were not revered as being you know competitors to european wines or you know other famous wine regions and it was when they really took a focus and really moved away italy has a similar story um where they were like no we're going to specialize on regional specificity find the varieties that grow here and are, we can elevate the special qualities, um, it really differentiated them into being more specialty premium and not just commodity, like what's going to go into the factory and make like the cheapest, most, you know, um, less variable product. And that that's from an economic perspective in the food system, you know, that's a, that's a really formative experience because everybody knows what Wonder Bread is. But when you look at a boutique bakery or even, say, a health food store that has an in-house bakery, um, there is such a variety in quality and such a variety of, in nutritional quality, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I love that you guys are doing that work as a state commission. I think that's really admirable. Yeah. So with, with the farmers you're working mm-hmm. with, um, I know you have a real passion working with the smaller, the smaller farmers. Do you work with any really large um, wheat farmers right now with your small cereals focus, trying to get them to do some adaptation to changing climate? Because I know right now California is really in the crosshairs of, you know, rapidly changing water availability. I mean, California has been a drought for a long time, but it, the, the severity has just gotten to a whole nother level. And I'm wondering what you guys are doing to help your farmers respond to that with a resilient model yeah so that is where variety selection also comes very important and we are um i'll say i'll give all the credit to dr mark lundy at uc davis so he's mm-hmm. our small grains specialist who is working and we have been doing this research for now three years um mm-hmm. i think we're about to publish or they're publishing uh um you know some research done on this and also in uh critical and not only wheat where they put some varieties under stress, nitrogen stress, but also drought stress. Mm-hmm. And we do see that certain varieties actually uh, respond better to those things. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but with lower nitrogen also bake well. Okay. And that's where actually, even though we have worked with these varieties I was mentioning before with some of our organic, organic regenerative farmers, they have put it on their test trials. And that same variety I was telling you before actually has performed the best. Wow. So it's something that we're seeing. And, and so, yes, to respond to your question, yes. Now, we are trying to figure out how to make this message more loud and clear to farmers, especially with the new rules of um, 
where there is going to be a sustainable water act in California called SIGMA, where certain land in California is going to be restricted from water. Mm-hmm. So, however, what I think it's interesting, interesting what Mark Lundy uh, is doing is saying that those, those fields might actually go fallow, but he is also doing research on how fallow farming or fallow areas soil is actually not good for the environment. Right. What rather do is a cover crop and where grains come as a cover crop is amazing. And some of those farmers yeah. were telling them, hey, if you do have an amazing crop, here are the varieties that you can work better in those regions yes. with minimum input and minimum water. You still, right. I mean, nothing grows without water. You're still going to need like, I think he was saying like about four to six inches of water would be ideal, uh, but you can still get okay of crop if it's a little bit less mm-hmm. than four inches of water. And then, um, and then because they won't have any water available for irrigation, so they're just dealing with it, whatever it comes right. that year. Right. If you do have a crop, then hey, let's make it work where we can test it. But also, I mean, they're talking about how they can silage that, but yeah. without having that fallow because it's yeah. the worst. Fallow is dangerous. I don't think people realize that from a saying. soil degradation mm-hmm. standpoint, how serious it can be, especially in an area that's suffering from the desertification mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just the fallout from that fallow, you know, period can be disastrous from a soil level. So there are so many w- fantastic grains in particular, but, you know, pulses and other crops that can be planted mm-hmm. and, and still produce a yield of something even right. under really terrible, terrible circumstances. So I love that you guys are working with farmers, probably reaching out beyond your typical you know, grain belt people, um, but people that are losing, um, having to take down orchards or other specialty crops that are just having to call it quits because of water access. Right. It's a really powerful notion. And I think for me, it's another powerful notion behind the concept of the consumer rally behind grains as a food group that in a changing climate and with global scarcity, food scarcity concerns, you know, grains, there's a reason why grains have been associated with strong, you know, civilizations for many, many years. Um, it's that you have to have that reserve of food. We need to really rekindle the quality of our grains rather than just pretending we don't need them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you guys are doing the right work to to bring that conversation to light. Now, with these fallow areas, are they looking to bring in more regenerative approach, you said, with the cover cropping and, and minimizing tillage, but are they bringing in any animal integration there? I have no idea about it's that whole aspect. Other world. Um, mm. I would think so, um, but depending how proximate they are, especially from the dairy area, mm-hmm. um, I, I, it might be. I know there are certain um, farmers who do bring their cattle to mm-hmm. grazing in certain regions and they transport them, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know how that is related to the mass industry that we have sure. in, in California. It's more industry. challenging here, I think, because of a, there's a lot of population for one. Right. Um, you know, I know a lot of regenerative mm-hmm. farmers um, in my neck of the woods, like Eastern Washington, Idaho, and then in the Midwest where, you know, there are for, in a thousand mile radius, there are fewer people than there are in a 50 mile radius here. Right. And so when you look at widespread animal integration and that kind of regenerative model, it's it's awesome philosophically, but when you look like at it butting up against neighborhoods and butting up against, you know, other municipal things, it just becomes much more complicated. Right. We can't just go, oh yeah, I just let's throw some cattle out there and it will fix everything. It's like, right. well, it's it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. So one of my personal interest points is like how can we bring in more 
aggressive, robust biodiversity rotation programs to mm-hmm. help augment that soil without, you know, I mean, it'd be great to have animals, but if it's not possible, there are a lot of great things we can do. Mm-hmm. And I think for people to hear that story, they're like, oh, cool. There is stuff we can do. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't feel like they've failed before they've even gotten started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting process. So biodiversity with nutrition, um, you know, when you look at what most people think about as, as flour, let's get back to wheat. Um, and I'm one of those nerdy wheat people where I've literally like traveled North Africa, finding the ancient casors and like the granaries of the Berbers. And wheat has a very fascinating historical story. Um, and, and it's not to be underestimated. Here in the United States, most people, when they think flour, the only thing they know of white flour is all purpose, Mm -hmm. which isn't even all just wheat. It's it's got barley flour in there as well. Um, How do you guys see the consumer adoption and the the consumer education around understanding wheat flour beyond all purpose? Uh, Well, I want to touch on what you say about the history of it. I think it's interesting to me when I found out that... um, from our breeder, Dr. Jorge Dukowski, how, you know, most of our wheat comes from this ancestral emmer wheat and then einkorn, which are the, the mm-hmm. oldest ones that we know that are still here. And they're probably, there are a lot more wild types that are, mm-hmm. you know, um, are grown. However, what I think was interesting, how, you know, humans have been talking or, or dealing with, with the things about nutrition and grains, how, Emmerweed, einkorn, if you look at them, they actually are yellow. And over the years, for many, many years, as, you know, um, crossing varieties and changing them how they are because of what consumers expect to receive, for years, they started actually crossing them and then that yellowness was facing out. So what we today Mm -hmm. know as common weed or have red spring weed or winter weed, that is actually when you scrape off the brand, you see the white flower. It actually is because over the years, uh, breeders intentionally Mm -hmm. have been actually selecting four varieties and crossing them to remove that yellowness. And then the one that is the closest to the emmer einkorn is actually durum, which the yellowness is is desirable for its pasta and couscous. Now, when we talk about nutrition, you think about what you're removing out of is some phytochemicals too, and some of those, um, you know, uh, lutein, uh, mm-hmm. the carotenoid pigments that are yeah. good for you. Now, you know, as as you want to make, they wanted to make whiter the better because white was recognized as a higher social status. They they remove something very important that our mm-hmm. ancestors of the wheat ancestor had. So that's one in- interesting thing to to think about when we talk about nutrition and what has happened over the years. And the next thing that to me is interesting, how one time talking with our breeders say that he has had meetings with um, millers and oftentimes he hears these like, we want weeds that have lower ash. Well, when you ask to have a weed with lower ash, which that means that you're asking to have less minerals mm-hmm. and vitamins. Mm-hmm. So, because ash is actually a measurement of the minerals that are there. Mm-hmm. So how you do that is, of course, you remove the brand, you remove most of those uh, uh, minerals and vitamins that are there, and then you're left with the endosperm that have less minerals. That means less nutrition. Right. So because ash in the white world is seen as a bad thing for the bread baking. Mm-hmm. So, and then he was like, how can I do that? You cannot ask me to make... Uh, uh, weed less unhealthy. Yeah. So it's a philosophical that's, right. problem. Yeah. 
So then with that also comes to explain people how, yes, we're, we're, what we have in the stores is all white flour, what you know, but out of that white flour, as you say, there's not only wheat, it's a little bit of some other things that are added, but it's a, a mix of varieties. I mean, at the end of the day, you they're mixing different varieties, different wheat types to make it to what is called a purpose flour. I was taught by my um, Dr. Shanae Shimshek in my baking class. She say, for us cereal scientists, all purpose flour equals no purpose flour. What that mm. means is that when we're making a product, especially when you're making it as an industrial, you need to know how that flour is going to behave. You could have all-purpose flour on the East Coast that is a much lower protein and much more mm -hmm. like a biscuity type of all-purpose flour, even though it doesn't say that. Or you could have one in more in the PNW that's an all-purpose flour that might be a higher protein mm -hmm. and more suitable for, you know, bread types. So yeah. that's why I mean like all-purpose flour doesn't mean that it's going to be for everything suitable. Right. It's just it's just kind of like a Generic. convenience thing yeah. for, for them to have in there so people can take it and make Anything. But you cannot make the best bread out of that all-purpose flour. No, you can't, especially if you're trying to make more artisanal bread. Exactly. It does not perform. So I feel like we could we could probably fill up hours of podcasting on all these different things we've talked about today. But I know you've got some exciting things going on later today. I um, And we're going to wrap it up. But I do want us to just kind of take it back to, um, you know, you think about consumers that are listening to this and they're like, boy... I'm not in the food industry. I'm not in the ag industry. What can I do? Like, what are action items that consumers can do that would help drive this renaissance in the grain sector? I think the one thing that I also became interested uh, working with, you know, supporting local farmers, mm -hmm. small uh, size farmers, or even larger farmers that have say, I want to be part of that. Is that when you are, well, first of all, if you have a farmer's, farmer's market and then there is a, a, you know, bread that they sell there or any wheat based product, mm -hmm. ask them, like, do you know your farmer? Are you using 100% whole grains? Mm -hmm. um, that's one way to do it. Also, there are tons of uh, small bakeries popping up throughout the US. Mm -hmm. um, cottage bakeries are becoming more popular. So support a local, Wonderful. support a local baker who, mm -hmm. you know, I would say the champions of these industry in my view to make sure that they educate consumers and who have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting have been our local bakers mm -hmm. because they are right there face to face to the consumer and and the consumers are asking them tons of tons of questions yeah and they're the ones who i know have been super supportive of finding local grades yeah. even sometimes it's really complicated so what they had to figure out how to bring it to their bread so they have actually become even millers Yes. And I have a couple examples. I mean, Dave Miller up in Chico, he makes the breast 100% whole wheat. He actually came from North Dakota, um, you know, where I went to school. So he would tell me like he had to learn what varieties are suitable here and what he can use. Mm -hmm. So he he's one of those. Uh, Josie Baker also, he has a mill and he also does his 100% whole wheat. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you many, many of those. So I'll say, find out who are your local bakers. Ask them questions. Mm -hmm. I also... I'll say one thing will be really fun and I do it all the time. When you have a, a, a restaurant that says farm to fork restaurant, always ask them because you're probably going to have a pasta dish. There's going yeah. to be some wheat or grain based product. Yeah. And it gets left out of the and I Exactly. So I say, always ask them this. Oh, you're a farm to fork and you know, I want your pasta dish. Say, where does, where does the path, where does the, 
flour that you're putting your pasta, where does that come from? Because yeah. that's from before. They'll right. always give you this look like, what are you talking about? It's just wheat. It's flour. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I love asking that question because I want one. them to, to think about that. Are yes. they truly farm to fork? Yeah. And the same thing goes with products that when they talk about regenerative and, you know, I've had conversations before where people say, I want to make this product re regenerative. But then they look at how complicated it is to bring that product because there's not a mill that is milling that kind of flour and they have to go out of the way and talk to the farmer. Yeah. Actually, sometimes they take shortcuts. Actually, I've seen that most of the time. So it really bothers me to see that because they see it how complicated. But if mm -hmm. it was easy, everybody will be doing it. Mm -hmm. And if you want to change things, make sure that you look at the product even on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And then do they have something that tells you like, what are they taking the steps? And oftentimes they have to go baby steps. You cannot just go and change it all because it's hard. Yeah. But are they showing you or telling you a story a that they're doing something toward mm -hmm. this goal? Yeah. Um, read the labels. Um, I'll say um, always make sure that things that you're buying at whole grain, whole wheat, they have a lot more um, character to it, but also they're really good for you. Absolutely. So I, you have so many cool things going on. You are a mom also, mm -hmm. and so you're raising kids. What gives you hope for the future? Oh, I love that. Um, that question is so. Um, so I, my kids have grown into me. I love cooking, like love cooking more than baking. Baking, I'm okay. But one of the things that warm, warm, warmed my heart is like I made lasagna. I was sick uh, for a couple of weeks, and then I got sick, and then I got sick. And I told my husband, "Say just, just get that." That lasagna pasta, you get it? Because I often make it my own, the lasagna noodle pa, the pasta. Wow. So I can make, and they love my lasagna. So, and when I put it in front of them with that lasagna, with that pasta from the store that I, I made, my kids were like, mom, this is different. This is not the same lasagna. And then I, I like, there's something. So I say, yeah, I had to use this lasagna. It's like, well, I like your lasagna better. So how I do mine is I use 100% einkorn flour for grease and top. I make it myself. It takes time, to be yeah. honest. But yes, it yields this amazing. What it gives me hope, how kids can learn to appreciate good food mm -hmm. and healthy food, because this is, again, it's made with 100% whole grain einkorn. Yeah. And they actually start picking on those differences. They taste the That difference. they actually can pick. So yeah. for me, it's easy to say because I love cooking. But I do know that there are moms out there that it's just like, cooking is not for me. Yeah. Right, where but, they just don't have time. Or don't have time. But mm -hmm. that's when you can actually hopefully find, you know, brands like yourself that can partner up and say, I really like what they're doing and I want my kids to do a half that. Mm -hmm. And start introducing those products. Don't think that these products are just for adults. Yeah. Because sometimes people think, Oh, my kid only eats mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. Have you ever actually asked him to try a little bit of this other dish or this right. salmon? Like and do baby steps. If yeah. you get them accustomed since they're very little to all these complex flavors, yeah. my kids love octopus. They love fish because yeah. I've been feeding them since they're very little. Yeah, They are not going to say no. So it really is bringing them up to the, the best health possible mm -hmm. with the fruits and vegetables, the whole grains, Absolutely. and everything else that you can get. give it to them. Just give it to them since they're little. Yeah, and even if they go through their little rebellious teenager phase, where they're like, I don't want to eat that food, mom. I'm going to eat the stuff you never let me have. And then they're like, ooh, I don't, I don't feel so good after eating that. You yes, know, like the them, novelty mm -hmm. is still there and they want to be rebellious or exploratory. But 
then they're like, gosh, that ruby was overrated. Like we'd actually really rather have just mom's homemade granola crunch food is what they call it. <laughs> My kids anyways, like mom's granola food. So it, I, I love that because it gives me hope to seeing a whole new generation of kids that are open-minded mm-hmm. to what food can be. And um, they can taste the difference between the the high quality made with love and the stuff that's just the factory commodity. And to me, that's that those are the foods that are driving our healthcare problems, mental health problems, a lot of things that we're up against um, in society. And it's amazing to think that food and sitting around and sharing a good meal with somebody can be at the heart of a solution to huge, huge problems. Yeah. And talk to them. I mean, they listen. Oh, my goodness. They listen so much. I had a friend of my daughter sitting on the table the other day saying, I made a promise to my mom I'm going to be eating more fruits and vegetables because my my you know my uncle almost died because he had a, a clock and it, mm-hmm. because he was not eating well. Yeah. So then I'm going to make sure I don't go through that. So yeah. I'm going to stay healthy. They right. are listening. Talk they to are. them about those things. Yeah. Don't think that they won't understand. They will understand. So yeah, I I agree. That's awesome. So I'm sure that our listeners want to learn more about what you're doing. Where is the best place for them to go to like keep up with all of your projects um i'm most active on linkedin so i'm uh, claudia potter there um okay. you can we'll find post me claudia potter. Yeah. your linkedin for those of you who are listening is so much fun so mm-hmm. you need to follow claudia thank you mm-hmm. and i'm also um active on our instagram so california wheat okay and also i have a project going on if you want to look into what we're doing at schools it's at uh wheat to school that's our other uh, link um instagram account okay we'll make sure that we post those in the show notes for everybody um i know a lot of our listeners will be really enthusiastic and especially the wheat to school program i think you know that is a whole nother topic we could talk about is early education school health like you know just focusing on children so maybe we'll have to do a part two Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> we'll invite you. Sian soon to join us on that yeah. one. So, thank Claudia, you. thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate thank it. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.